Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast glad not to be talking about the reshuffle this week. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. It's probably a good thing we're not talking about the reshuffle, Steve, because it saw another failed prediction. Boris Johnson did do a reshuffle. He, he finally did, yeah. I was wrong. There's a shock. Instead, we're going to talk about a snap election. Not in Britain, thank Christ. But we're going to talk about the Canadian election with Patrick Cook. Hello, Patrick. It's been a while. I know it has. Hello, Corey and Steve. Uh, hello, Champagniacs. It is uh, kind of humid and uh, blue skies in New York right now. I'm excited to talk about Can- Canadian elections, or as I refer to it, America's hat. It's quite nice weather in Birmingham as well. We ate breakfast outside today, which I'm guessing is probably the last time that's going to happen before winter sets in. Either that or given yeah. the climate crisis, we'll be doing it in November. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, as, as Patrick said, so he thankfully is going to be the expert to talk about this because otherwise this podcast will just become another iteration of straight white men talking about countries they've never been to. So let's talk about the snap election after this. You've got a prime minister who called the snap election because he wanted to take advantage of the fact that he was doing well in the polls. Also wanted to take advantage of the fact that the opposition party was in some disarray, was led by someone not necessarily seen as particularly charismatic. In fact, in many ways, that opposition party was seen as being led by extremists. And the subsequent backlash from calling a snap election when the last election had only been held two years previously, means that there's the, the Prime Minister is in serious danger of ending their political career. Now, you'll forgive me, Patrick, I've seen that story before. We, we've already had this election. This, this election happened in 2017. You have seen this election before. One thing to note about Canadian elections is that hung parliaments are more common in Canada. And minority governments are much more common. Canada does not have a history of coalition governments. It is unlikely that no matter what the outcome, that there isn't a minority government. Yes, we've seen this before. Um, unlike, uh, and you could say 2019, and you know, you could say that the last uh, House of Commons election could have been that way, but Jeff Trudeau doesn't have it. Doesn't have this thing called Brexit to rally rally the flag of his people around it he has consider what he, what people what he believes to be a, con- a considerable good response to covid but he is has some scandals along the way the polling looked decent for him and then conservatives changed leaders and they started tightening before called the elections the gap between the conservatives and the liberals started to narrow and now it's not looking like such a great idea Should we have a quick sort of run through about who the runners and riders are in this race? So, as you say, Justin Trudeau, not to be confused with Pierre Trudeau, that's a different Prime Minister of Canada. He's leader of the Liberal Party, got the 
conservatives then, haven't you? And you've got a big block of sort of Quebec independence. Now, of course, Canada, as, as you say, doesn't have a history of coalition government because it's got the first-past-the-post system, which, as you all know, is a slightly flawed way of, of running this, um, hence no sort of no coalitions for you. Um, is the Quebec independence a bit like the SNP then? Are they sort of, do they have a lot of seats despite not having many votes because they're all quite geographically concentrated? That's correct. So really, Quebec's an interesting one. So the Black Québécois um, is more of a separatist, uh, advocates for more, very, SNP is a very, very good example, is a very, very good example of it. Um, I actually would think that you take SNP and then Plaid Camera together because uh, they also want the Quebec, for example, their provincial election, the provincial legislature is called the National Assembly. They now basically have everything in French, it's similar to kind of like Pad Karma's growth of um, of Welsh. But so they tend to all of the various separatist nationalist parties in Quebec tend to vote for Black Quebecois. They tend to get, you know, 20 to 30, 40 feet, but they will never work with any of the government. They may vote for certain things, but they're not going to get themselves involved. Uh, usually in Quebec, particularly, that is tends to be stronger for liberals. An example of 2011, when the liberal vote completely collapsed, that tend to end up becoming an ND, NDP, ended up getting a ton of seats in, in, in Quebec. But usually it's Quebec, it's usually Black Quebecois, liberal, and some conservatives, and then if the NPO lucky to have to. But pretty much um, liberals, similar to, US Dem to, to the Democratic Party of the United States, NDP probably closer to the Labour Party or, you know, um, I would put Labour Party or the, the Bernie Sanders wing of the of the Democratic Party. The Green Party is not similar to a Green Party that you would expect in European politics. It's more closer to the U.S. ones, to the U.S. Green Party, which tends to be a little out there. They don't look like they're going to get much. Maybe they'll hold their one seat in Vancouver and maybe they'll hold possibly another seat in British Columbia, but they switched leaders and, you know, there's not that much hope from them. NTP, um, it, it looks to be strong. They've pretty much stabilized in their polls, but they're left-leaning. They're probably closer towards, definitely close to the Labour Party, but more kind of more along to, I would also, another example would be the um, populist side of Sinn Féin would be another good example to talk about in terms of um, how they how they view, view the role of the state. The Venn diagram of the Bernie Sanders Democrats, the British Labour Party, and the populist wing of Sinn Féin, that's... That's a hell of a church, isn't it, to plant your your views on? Yeah, I mean, NDP, uh, I tend to, I think NDP is really, NDP kind of is um, an interesting one. It kind of takes the, it takes the populist sides of Bernie Sanders, and it, it, it's probably more close to NDP one, but they tend to also have this very weird thing to where they're actually pretty strong in the, in, in the, in, in the prairies and in in Alberta, because they they were formerly a union party, um, they started by unions, so they have a strong working class in the prairies in in, in Manitoba and Alberta and stuff like that. So it's a little bit odd. It's it's kind of what you probably would say, the Democratic Party under JFK, FDR in terms of its coalition of people. And they have some of the stuff that liberal Democrats tend to get, which is the, the you know, 
higher higher educated people in the cities may vote for them and stuff like that. Um, but the the coalition that the NDP is able to hold together is kind of interesting. And the other parties in there is Max Bernay and his People Par- People's Party, which is super far right, um, which overwhelmingly, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do. They probably won't raise a seat, but they could be the Brexit party to the conservatives if they decide to take just enough out of very, enough in certain, you know, you know, swing margin, uh, swing um, ridings to, you know, deny the conservatives of it and put either a liberal, the NDP into that seat. So you need 170 seats, don't you, for a majority? At the moment, it's kind of touch and go, isn't it, between the Justin Trudeau's Liberals and you say the Conservatives, but there's really fine margins, aren't there, about how that might play out in the vote on... No, it's on Monday, isn't it? I think it's the 20th, yeah. The the electoral geography of, of, of the Canadian ridings is going to be quite an interesting um, element of the, the results here, because uh, like all first-past-the-post systems, if you're if your vote isn't evenly distributed throughout the entirety of the of, of you know the country or the area um you are going to run into some interesting quirks uh, with, of the system um and unfortunately for the conservatives in canada they have a provincial base which is very very strong in alberta but they but they don't necessarily have um as strong a presence in the other uh, you know provinces um, it's not to say that they're non-existent or anything like that, but they are not as prevalent. And as a result, they could have some absolutely stunning results going neck and neck with the Liberals, you know, in terms of overall vote share. But it wouldn't necessarily give them the same number of seats, because if they're just bringing up a load of votes in in, in Alberta, that's not going to win them seats else elsewhere. And so you do have a situation where the Conservatives are potentially going to struggle to actually get over the line in a meaningful way. And I think some of the uh, kind of like Canadian um, election specialists have kind of done the math and worked it out and says that if the Conservatives needed to want to actually win the election outright, they would need to get a six-point lead over the uh, uh, over the uh, uh, over the over the Liberals. That's very unlikely to happen. But you've got a lot of things happening there which are just not necessarily working in their favour. And that's before you even get into the issue of, uh, you know, how the Conservatives are running their campaign, their policy positions and the the balancing act that they've got to run between basically what they can, what they should do to be presentable versus what they should, what they need to do to keep their membership happy. And if we're going to do one of my other favourite things, which is, find parallels between obscure historical events and UK general elections. That's very much a 2005 vibe, isn't it? With the Conservatives, I think, gaining, I think Michael Howard's Tories got more votes in England, didn't they, than Labour did, but Tony Blair still got a 60-seat majority. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about the Conservatives a little bit. So Erin O'Toole, he's the Conservative leader, and there's an interesting bit in The Economist about how he's trying to rebrand his party and make it more palatable to centrist voters. Uh, he's guaranteed that he'll, explain, he'll expel climate change sceptics from his caucus and backing a carbon price of $50 a tonne, little things like that. And apparently he was a, a former helicopter navigator. That was a really good point, Steve, on, on that on the geographical concentration of the conservative vote. 
and it's it's very interesting that they have to run the table in the prairies and you know limit the damage that can be done by ndp in those in those areas and also hopefully somehow close to replicate what Doug Ford has done in Ontario, where they, where they're the the government of Ontario's provincial elections. The other thing too is, and Corey, you brought this up, which is the difference between previous versions of the Conservative Party. So the Conservative Party of Canada used to be the Progressive Conservatives. Then they rebranded to Conservative Party of Canada, Canada, and it shows this kind of like disconnect of how the federal parties and provincial parties won. Is that the federal Parties, NDP, Liberals, Greens, and the Conservatives are distinctly separated from the provincial parties that have the same name. So you could have a, a, a very, what would considered moderate conservative party on federal level, but have very conservative parties, uh, conservative parties in such as Alberta or Manitoba, Saskatchewan, or something like that. Or, and they all have different names, and they're very different. Yeah, and, and that's one of the, the issues that like Aaron O'Toole is having to kind of like navigate on, on, on his campaign side. Um, he's gone big on uh, very much having a having a plan, having a policy agenda that there's a solution to that. Even like I think he's taken to um, quite literally when he's been having like town hall meetings and, and things and people are saying, well, what are you going to do about this? He'll say, well, if you check out page number 73 of this in that section, in that chapter, you'll find our plan and it is X, Y, Z. And he's taken to like thumbing through and reading extracts of it um, on, on on the stage just to, to make, make the point that we have thought this through, we have an actual plan. But his plan is very much based on this balance between the, what the federal kind of like party might want to do that makes it electable versus what a lot of the cons conservative uh, provincial parties and conservative um, kind of like supporters actually wants to happen. So you end up with some interesting kind of like fine lines and balances uh, happening. So one of the pieces of legislation that Trudeau passed was like banning like uh, some form of assault weaponry or, you know, standard sort of, uh, you know, gun control sort, sort of theft. This was heavily opposed by quite a few um, like conservative-leaning uh, individuals in Canada. And originally, O'Toole, from, the, from, from what I can see, was kind of courting them a little bit with what they were, what he was kind of, uh, in order to basically become leader. But the, 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 the problem he's got is he's had to kind of develop a, a halfway house policy, which doesn't commit him to actually abolishing the legislation that's been passed. Um, and you know, legalizing this, really legalizing this weaponry, because that would turn off an awful lot of people in areas that and people that he needs to win votes from. But also, he still needs to commit to something, and he's committed to a review of the, uh, you know, the legislation, which may or may not go into anything. Who really knows? He's basically got a policy of kicking it into the long grass. So he's uh, like, whilst he's gone big on having this this plan for Canada doesn't necessarily mean it's actually any good because he's having to like square this circle which is and it's the it's, it's the same problem that conservatives all over have got in, in in many many ways not just a canadian us uk thing all over the world they've got this same problem how do you square the circle of keeping your membership base happy given they seem to be going more and more to the right um whilst also making yourself attractive to to other uh, other swing voters great point I think one thing also is another example that is requiring candidates for 
the federal party to be vaccinated yet not uh, backing a vaccine mandate. Is it, you know, is the example of that kind of trying to, 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 as you said, square the circle. One thing I think is the Conservative Party is starting to, the, the Canadian Conservative Party is starting to really, really, and this is crazy, mirror the American Conservative movement. Uh, you have this social conservancy starting to creep into them, kind of isolation is kind of more things of that is similar to the U.S. one. And uh I'm going to, to all the Canadians listening to the podcast, it doesn't end well. Stop it now. Yeah, hopefully that plea to our many, many listeners in Canada will halt that populist force. Um, but it's we've, we've sort of talked a bit before um, about that, that globalisation of um, almost like American populism. And it's happening in, in the UK as well, because you can see that with the mask wearing in the House of Commons, where... I think Labour and the Lib Dems, the SNP, the other opposition parties, just about everyone's wearing a mask on that side of the chamber. Very, very few wearing masks on the Conservative side of the chamber. Even though, internationally speaking, the UK, in terms of polling anyway, is pretty down with vaccines, even pretty pro-mask wearing, I think, compared to a lot of other countries. There's still a few people trying to launch that sort of cultural aspect i mean jacob Rees-Mogg this week i think talking about how mps didn't need to wear masks because they knew other people in the chamber it's a weird phenomenon that's happening elsewhere and you can see it. it's just as if you've got the new democratic party that has the the perennial left-wing party problem of we've got our traditional trade union base plus our sort of more middle-class progressives but as you say that traditional center-right parties have that sort of tension too how you talk about the difference between provincial parties, federal parties, how centralized or decentralized is Canada as a system? Is it like the UK where essentially Westminster has all the power, local politics can go hang? Or is it more like France where we just let the mayors run everything? Closer to America, to the American system. So um, you have uh, similar to, you know, the federal system, uh, is similar to this way. So a little bit, di- the, the political system's a little bit different than America to where the National Democratic Party is probably, and the State Democratic Party is an extension of the National Democratic Party, similar similar ideologies in the one. That is not the case in Canada. Provincial parties can be very different than their federal counterparts. Example, example they use is, example uses Alberta, a United Conservative Party, um, was the Progressive Conservative Party and this other party called Wild Rose, which wants a, a Wexit, as they call it, Alberta to secede. And they've come to be very much more conservative than than Digmon. They're very much more similar to probably what you would think as the US or Germany model of it, where they have their own competencies. And yes, like the US, the federal government can supersede any any law that the state government can make based on, based on one. But um, they have wide-ranging... The vast majority of states uh, of social services are done by the state, not by the federal government, similar to the U.S. I think Australia would be very similar, but um, I kind of think maybe Scotland might be a really good example where they have most of the competencies. But unlike probably the British model of it is that there are similar to the U.S. two separate court systems, state and uh, provincial courts, and, 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 and I think they call them crown courts as well in, in Canada federal rule still supersedes anything the state, the, the provincial government does. 
couple of things that maybe we could talk I wanted was interesting reading around this just to kind of get a sense of where we think post-pandemic politics might go generally. As you say, the big story here is Justin Trudeau thinking that he could get a massive mandate because of how well his government have handled the COVID pandemic. And obviously that's sort of come a bit unstuck, hasn't it? Because partly because you've got rising COVID cases, there's some talk of maybe a bit of Trudeau fatigue going on because he's been sort of doing daily press conferences, hasn't he? Um, Andrew Cuomo Claxon. And so it feels like maybe the, the, the sheens sort of have come off. Uh, his personal ratings are a bit down, aren't they? There's a, a book coming out by a former justice minister saying that um, Trudeau, I think, asked her to lie, uh, which can't be great to come out in the middle of an election campaign. Again, do, do you think this election tells us anything about, say, when Emmanuel Macron's up for election next year? Uh, there's speculation that Boris Johnson might call an early-ish election, maybe more like 2023 than 2022. Is this more, Steve, that there's um, lots of people have used that 1945 analogy, sort of Winston Churchill wins the war and then it's voted out, sort of Labour has a plan to win the peace. Do you think there's a sense that that might happen with a lot of governments that have sort of weathered the pandemic and then that's not necessarily going to however they manage the pandemic isn't necessarily going to be the same as getting an electoral mandate. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think, you know, managing the pandemic well is going to be, you know, a, 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 a an example of, you know, you will definitely be able to, you know, sail to victory in, in, in the next election. I think the, the, the main thing here, though, is that uh, for, for Canada especially, is that Trudeau called an early election for why? What, what is the reason for it? He says, oh, I need a majority in order to kind of properly govern uh, and, uh, you know, help Canada recover. That's that's his line. But the reality is, like, he's been doing that anyway. He's managed to hold, do everything reasonably well, as far as everyone can, 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 can see in, in terms of, like, handling COVID. So does he really need a majority? So instead, it looks like he's just trying to take advantage of the situation um, and be kind of like politically devious with it and go, ha ha ha, I might be able to kind of like manipulate this to my advantage. And people have just gone, mate, we've just gone through like one of the most tumultuous periods uh, of our lifetimes. And you're just immediately just trying to jump into this for your own good rather than actually for the good of Canada. The best thing for Canada might actually have just be, you know what, let's just continue on, get back to normal as best as possible. And that's kind of like the view of a lot of people. And I think for, for, for Trudeau, he made a calculated gamble and that's just not paid off at all. He's, he's been around a while now. Has he been prime minister for like six, six years, something like that? Like any, any leader in power that long will be coming, you, you would think would be coming to the end of their, like their popularity. Kind of like hedge that whilst people are desperate to get back to normal. And then when they are able to get back to normal, immediately saying, by the way, an election's happening for what they can see no good reason. Maybe he should have unveiled a plan to fix social care in the middle of the election. That might have Maybe he should do Dancing Queen at, at, his, at, Dancing Queen at, at his, uh, conference speech. Who could possibly pull that off in a way maybe Theresa May couldn't though, Steve? Yeah. Do we think that um, the naughtiest thing that Trudeau has done was run through fields of wheat? I think it might have been when he's blacked <laughs> up. <laughs> uh, not once, not Multiple twice. Multiple times. times he did that. <laughs> was it several times? Yeah, several times. Yeah. Oh, blimey. That was yeah. only once. I remember. No. 
It kept on coming up. Remember, what? Yeah, wow. yeah. Yeah. In a press conference he had before the 2019 election, he's he like more or less like was announcing that happened and it, that he was like saying he's sorry about the other one. And he go and he more or less something along the lines like, I apologize for that. Uh, it was something that I did it. And, you know, uh, I'm deeply ashamed if it comes up again. Or something along the lines of like, like, hey, it's, I've done it again. I know it's coming up again. I'm getting ahead of this game for that, that I've done it three separate times. One of them was because he dressed up as Aladdin, which is to me one of more of the funny things ever. But I think the viewpoint that he got is that I can use this rally around the flag pandemic as as a way to as a way for me to stabilize another four year term and not have to call another election again to stabilize out. You know, uh, the labor. You know, it's the labor version of the other side of when Gordon Brown should have called an election in 2007 when he became, you know, prime minister, prime minister. It's the other idea that he thinks he might be able to stabilize it out so that post pandemic, if the economy kind of falters, he's got, he's gotten something that he can ride away for more years. But I think there's a couple, I think the thing that I think that exactly why Boris Johnson wouldn't want to go to an election now is a similar to the reason of like Trudeau's going to deal with is that you know people see that you know like one of the big things that the NDP has been holding against the liberals is first off pharmacare that you know there is no su subsidized socialized medicine for, for pharmaceuticals in, in in their system so they have yeah so they they have they have to have insurance for, for pharmacare similar to, to what we have here in the U.S. So there's been pushed for that. And there's been a straining of the socialized med medicine system of their their kind of, you know, provincial led health system that has kind of strained their system and not have enough money into it. As well as like there's a couple of other things that he thought he could get away with by his pandemic, the treatment of First Nations, their term for indigenous people, their Native Americans, as we call them in the U.S. There's there's, you know, a decent thing of like, you know, the various um, scandals that he thought maybe running now on pandemic politics that they've done a decently well way, you know, using the U.S. as a reason of saying, look, we could have been worse there, but look what I did. We didn't have nearly the, you know, we haven't had nearly the pandemic that the Americans has. And it's honestly just kind of fallen flat on his face because they didn't do well in a couple of previous, you know, they, you can see this coming. They didn't do well in, in the British Columbia election last year where the NDP got a majority government in and provincial, they did not do well in Nova Scotia elections. They didn't do well in the, the Atlantic Canada had a couple of provincial elections where the where the liberals since they've had all elections and it just hasn't really played out in favor. And his environmental record is coming back up that he has allowed tar sands to be continued to be, you know, taken out of the ground in Alberta and the Canadian ones. And the, and the NDPs have been successfully at at. NDP has necessarily at pointing pointing out their shoddy their shoddy environmental record under Trudeau's governments. Yeah, uh, that's the other thing I think that would be interesting to talk about. So I suppose if we're sort of talking about post-pandemic politics, it's that sort of shift from the immediate crisis in front of us to the very well, also immediate but also existential problem of of the climate crisis. So one of the things that seems to have been a factor in Trudeau winning a minority administration a couple of years ago was winning over more progressive voters on women's issues, but also issues around climate change as well. We've talked about how the Conservatives have sort of tried to do that as well. So is this 
again, another factor, just as I suppose in the American election as well, where you've got actually environmental issues are becoming more and more important. Short end, yes. It's one of those things of like, is that like, just to use an American example, there's been two hurricanes, two hurricanes that have hit both down to Louisiana and we had a tropical storm that flooded most uh, flooded all the subways in New York City. And now you're seeing people responding back saying, oh, this is, you know, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations. The same thing with Canada. That's where the NDP has kind of NDP, while has union jobs, doesn't have to doesn't has over the conservatives who have to support those those car sands and stuff like that. And the liberals proceed to need the money because it's a great export and get tax one. And, you know, someone once someone that follows a, a friend of the false Canadian politics uh, uh, more than me said, Justin Trudeau is a centrist dressed up in is a centrist dressed up in progressive clothing. He is a centrist. He's, he he puts off as himself as a political, but he goes, if you look at his his, you know, response to reconciliation with First Nations, which was all over the debates this year was reconciliation with the First Nations, not drinking water on all of the First Nation reservations. And the tar sands came up and you know, the response, the, you know, the response to the response and then the response to, you know, in terms of getting extra money for socialized medical systems came up that he thought he was doing a good job. And so he's in this weird spot to where he has to have been here for six years, had enough time to make changes and people aren't happy on top of, you know, the, the, you know, the economy faltering a little bit. It's, you know, he's just stuck in a one. Now, I think we said this before that one, the one thing for to remember, and Steve said this is that they have a seat advantage to liberals. So they, if they are even, so say 30 or 30, you know, 32%, between them and you know one one or two percent between them, they probably still will get the vast majority of seats. Does it make their government any stronger? So, are we saying the most likely outcome of this is a minority government, probably the Liberals, maybe the Conservatives, and then what happens then? Is it sort of a bit confidence and supply, a bit like yeah, what happens at the moment? Okay, well, so it's non. It's like it's not. Um, it, there's no formalized you know, agreements, they, you know, the, it's the same thing that you guys, different than us, where it's not the same as the U.S. ones. What's the first point of gov- uh, confidence of government? It's the throne speech, what you guys call the queen speech. You know, so when they put, when the governor general stands up there and says, this is what my, the, gov- my, the government is going to do, um, it's it's the same thing that if they get enough votes to that, they should be able to get through and, you know, and, and do basic. But as of now, the CBC poll tracker, as of... September 17th, 1.25 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. It is, the, the projected is 153 for liberals, 118 for conservatives, 37 for NDP, 29 for Black Quebecois, one for green, and one for green. So right there, that would put most likely liberals enough to be able to, to govern on like, for what it's worth, a, a it, they would come off as a lame duck one. They would do some basic stuff from recent one, but they're not going any whole scale changes unless, you know, the NDP extorts them to get them to get the votes that they need for stuff like that. But it would probably be business as usual. And probably in two to three years, we'll have another election. If, if it stays them, but they seem to function decently well, minority governments in Canada. Um, and I think it is irrespective of, the federal system in that the provincial governments have a decent amount of power. So similar to the U S the state of New York 
is more impactful in my life than the federal government is in my day-to-day life is the same thing in Canada. Unlike in, in a wonderful UK, hung parliament, minority government, England has knock-on effects for down to the local level in um, there is not exactly the case in Canada. They won't get any large movements on policy ones, but you know there are various provincial legislative assemblies and premiers will um, keep keep it running because they have their own taxes and they have their own competencies to move things forward. Oh, well, I look forward to seeing what the result is on Monday and then talking, having and recording another episode with you, Patrick, in the next snap election in Canada in two or three years time. Um, well, we should do a wrap up show afterwards of what happened. We could. We could yeah, that's all the runners and riders, um, which we might put out just on Patreon, might we, Steve? And if you do want to support the community of champagners, what do you need to do? Uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where but for a few pounds a month you can uh, gain access to unique episodes early access to episodes um unique blog content all of that sort of thing um everything uh that we make goes on keeping this podcast uh running so yeah it's we're very grateful for any and all support we receive our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Cookie Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I am at Pete Cook 11. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs>